any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable magic. Welcome, everybody, to the Into the Impossible podcast. I'm Brian Keating, your lately very fearful host. Uh, usually uh, not quite this fearful, but during uh, pandemic times, we've created the Pandemic Podcast Series, bringing together the world's most brilliant authors, thinkers, scholars, scientists, and poets, and all sorts of uh, people that I'm interested in, uh, just, just to be perfectly candid. And I hope that you out there on the internet are, and by the amazing reaction we're having. It's uh, it's going quite well. Today is a real treat. Just reached out to you, Sasha Sagan, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, would you please uh, do me the honor of coming on the <laughs> Into the Impossible podcast? And you said yes. Here she I said am. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> It's great to uh, to connect with you. I want to um, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. I want to talk a little bit about uh, about uh, your wonderful book, but more spend time talking about your philosophy and and your your story, which I think is so unique and so meaningful. Of course, your book is called "For Creatures Such as We," small creatures such as we. And uh, if you needed any inspiration from authority figures to read this book, uh, you should go no further than looking at the cover. A quote from Bill Nye our favorite science guy, he said, read her work. You'll have a deeper appreciation for your every step, every bite, and every breath. And the famous um, uh, self-declared militant atheist, and we're going to talk about that because I think I think of you as a militant centrist. You're very, <laughs> you're Thank in, you. I in, like that. Yeah, you're uh, incredibly um, uh, parsimonious. Uh, sorry, you're not parsimonious, but you're you're incredibly um, uh, conciliatory. Uh, conciliance. You strike conciliance is what I'm trying to say, and I love that. Uh, but the uh, militant atheist, the so-called the author of the God Delusion and other things, uh, he wrote, uh, "She's Carl Sagan's daughter, and it shows a charming book ringing with the joy of existence." And the only thing I'd add to to the great uh, Richard's quote there is that you're also Andrean's daughter. And, yes. and I think uh, you somehow managed to, to kind of channel both of them. And the book really resonated to me as a father um, of daughters and of sons and, and also uh, uh, just as, as a human being is that sort of a, a pay on to your parents, both Carl and Anne and, and also you as a mother and your daughter and your husband. And I th found it so refreshing. It truly is charming. And, uh, you know, I think on The Simpsons once there was a quote about a book that it's unputdownable, uh, <laughs> uh, that Homer called the book unputdownable. So I think if Homer gets to the next blurb, he would probably say that. So first of all, I want to say to get a blurb from Homer. <laughs> I mean, if, if fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, and Marge too. We, we can't, yeah, we can't leave Marge. Yet. No. Um, so I want to first uh, take this opportunity to wish you an early Happy Mother's Day. We're recording this Thank a couple you. days before Mother's Day, 2020, and I, I bet it's going to be a Mother's Day unlike any other uh, uh, for all of us, for all the mothers and and uh, wives and grandmothers out there in the world. And I wanted to talk about uh, the way that the book struck me uh, after we get into a description of the cover. I, uh, unlike the advice that's normally offered, I judge all books by their covers. And yes, it's forbidden, <laughs> and yet it's so hard not to do. <laughs> so walk us through the cover. We're going to have graphics for the YouTube watchers uh, for creatures such uh, small creatures such as we, rituals for finding meaning in our unlikely world. Uh, so you'll have to check out the YouTube videos to see what the cover actually looks like. But Sasha, can you walk us through? the cover design and where the title and subtitle came from. Well, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Brian. I'm delighted to be with you in this strange new world where it's all virtual. Um, 
The title of the book um, comes from a line uh, in uh, in Contact, which was uh, the only work of fiction that my dad ever published. He and my mom together wrote um, dozens of books and essays and the original Cosmos television show together, which he hosted. Um, but they had this idea for for a work of fiction, um, a first contact story. And um, originally they wanted it to be a movie, but movies, it took a long time for that particular movie to get made. And in the, in the meantime, um, they wrote it as a novel. And the line that the title of my book comes from, um, my mother actually wrote, they collaborated on everything. And, and this was something that she had brought um, to the story. And it's, the, the rest of the line is, for small creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love. And for those of us who are secular and those of us who have to go through this kind of existential crisis of we're tiny in this gigantic universe and we don't know if there's anything else out there or if there's anything after we die or all these deep philosophical questions where we sort of have to hold space for ambiguity. Um, the, the, the other side of that crisis to me is, well, what do we have? We have one another right here, right now. And I think especially during this very strange time we're in, it feels so clear, you know, the, the longing to be together with those that you miss, the longing to have those, those feelings of togetherness and the closeness you feel if you're lucky enough to be quarantined with some people you love, the, the gratitude that you have to be with them. Um, I think it just has become so much crystal clear, at least to me, um, in this time. And so that's where the title of the book um, came from. And the subtitle, we went back and forth, the publishers and the marketing people and my editor, and we went back and forth so many times because it sort of is a strange combination of genres, this book. I mean, there are elements that are memoir and there are elements that are sort of social history, although I'm not a historian. I just dream of being <laughs> one. And there are elements that are sort of almost in the prescriptive, like, I don't want to say like how to, but the idea of this is something you could do at home or this is something you could adapt um, in your own way. And so we really went through a lot of different incarnations um, to figure out a subtitle that worked and in different, so when in the UK and Australia and New Zealand where I have a different publisher, the title is the same, but the subtitle is different, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really sort of a, a, a um, exploration of what are how we keep time and how we celebrate and how we mourn and how we process change um, with or without uh, a particular theism. Yeah, I just can't resist uh, just a call back to our one of our more recent episodes with the author Sarah Scholes, who wrote the biography of Jill Tarter, who mm. of course is a was a loose inspiration, as I understand it, uh, for your uh, father and mother in mm. the book Contact. And actually, Sarah's uh, current book is called um, They Are Already Here about mm. UFO sightings. And her previous book was about SETI. So I asked her if her next book is about Yetis. Um, <laughs> you know, 
know, Loch Ness monster, what have you. But she, uh, she's, she's uh, tight-lipped on that. Uh, but in any event, she did write Making Contact, uh, where the callback is to, of course, the name of that book, which is the origin of the, uh, at least the main masthead title of this book. So it's nice to make that connection, and folks should check out those interviews um, with, uh, with uh, Jill Tarter's biographer, uh, Sarah Scholes, on the Into the Impossible back catalog. Um, and so the book, you know, the, the, the essence of ritual really does kind of speak to me, as uh, many of my listeners know, I'm uh, a practicing Jew. I'm not an uh, Orthodox Jew. I, I like to do that, say that for the benefit of, uh, of, of Orthodox Jews so that they don't get uh, into too much trouble. Uh, but I do want to uh, first start asking a little bit about some of the connections, the influence of Judaism on your life. Uh, obviously, you're secular. But you're not, uh, as I say, you know, militantly so. And and one of the things, or militantly uh, atheist for sure. And certainly, you've developed so many rituals in your life that are new, novel ones, from the welcoming of your daughter, uh, continuing a one generation old tradition into the second generation, uh, and all, uh, you know, and and you really tie together these beautiful connections between the biological the astrological, the, you know, the physical nature of, of cycles. And I think rituals don't exist without cycles or without some notion of time's passage. And I'll, the only thing I'll say about the book's uh, structure is that it's ordered by season and kind of seasons of life. But I want to ask you a question that came to me during the reading of the book. I read a lot of books on leadership and, and you know, being a good leader. And, 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 and one of them is like, you know, willpower is is useless. Like discipline trumps willpower <laughs> every day. And I started to think, well, like, what is better in the hierarchy according to you, Sasha? Do you feel like willpower, ritual, habit, um, you know, because you can have you talk about all sorts of different habits and rituals from your husband so lovingly uh, providing you with morning coffee at least before the baby, or maybe before the pandemic, oh, still, or maybe oh, he still oh, does. All right, he's um, amazing. My I... wife's not gonna listen to this. <laughs> Uh, so talk us through like the hierarchy in your mind. Um, would you, you know, do, do, what do you think a person should sort of rely on a ritual, a habit or, or their own willpower and discipline? I think that, I mean, it just depends on what you need and what you're looking for as a person. What I, you know, what, what I've really found in ritual. And so, and in terms of my own, um, belief or uh, lack thereof, I I consider myself secular, which is my position is I reserve belief without evidence. So I don't think it's for me to say there is definitely not this or there is definitely that. Um, But the things that are supported by evidence um, for me are so breathtakingly astonishing and beautiful that that has provided you know, nature as revealed by science has provided enough for me, enough wonder, enough awe, enough sense of belonging um, in part of something greater than myself that I don't feel um, a call to that which relies on faith to be believed. Um, That said, my ancestor, I mean, when I take a DNA test, you know, kit, and the results come back, it's like you are like ninety nine point nine 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 percent Ashkenazi. Well, no, 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 like, <laughs> no, one's, no one's perfect, Sasha. Yeah, I know, right? Just kidding, I think just they kidding, like legally can't kidding. even say, I'm right. like, what? <laughs> yeah, what traveling salesman in the Middle Ages came through? Um, and well, when I took the test, my, my dad said to me, congratulations, you're genetic garbage. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm your mean. father, you're genetic garbage. <laughs> um, no, but like, you know, and the thing about relying on 
science as um, your worldview is that it's missing like cuisine and expressions and holidays. And I'm very, like, I love a celebration. I love a party. I love to get dressed up. I love to mark time and I find it very soothing. And I think that that's something that ritual provides and it allows us to process change because, you know, that Change, as my mother always says, there is no refuge from change in the cosmos. It is constant. It's the only constant. And it's very hard for us, we little creatures on this pale blue dot, to get our heads around it. You know, even just like when you, you know, see someone you haven't seen in a long time and they're older, you know, birth, death, coming of age, the changing of the seasons, these are the markers in our lives because these are the signposts that say everything is not forever. And some of the changes are cyclical um, and some of them are permanent. And I think the reason that rituals, elaborate rituals, very private rituals, all manner of ritual have have developed independently from one another in so many disparate cultures at such similar moments in our lives is because we have some deep need to to really take a step back and say wow things are different today than they were yesterday or than they were last year or whatever it is and so that's something that I really connect to in in Judaism and so we have for example a secular Passover Seder every year and we do Hanukkah but we do it from a standpoint of this is what our ancestors did, you know, beyond two or three generations. I don't know anybody's names. I don't know what village they came from, but I know that they were Jews. And so like when I light like a yurtzeit candle on the anniversary of the death of someone that I loved, I know that somebody I came from, somebody whose qualities I have somewhere, somehow genetically um, did this at some point in the last 6,000 years. And I find that really soothing and meaningful without it requiring a theistic connection. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder when I was uh, listening to, like I listened to it, I read it um, and I recommend all, all, you know, every single listener buy and, and get all three different versions of this Thank book. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I get, I get, you know, a nickel every purchase. That, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I thought about it and, you know, it reminded me of, and, and there's so much in what you just said from, you know, belief in science and evidence um, and, and of course, in ritual. Just the last thing I'll say about, you know, kind of habits versus willpower. Uh, you know, so when my, you know, wife and I are walking through some, you know, the county fair and, you know, so one of the kids wants, you know, something deep fried butter stick or something, you know, the easiest thing for us to do is say, oh, it's not kosher. Sorry. You know, it's mm -hmm. like that trumps everything. Mm -hmm. And and then, you know, lower down is like their own willpower. And then lower down is like perhaps, you know, you know, that's not the way that we do things or, or something, you know, along the scale of things. It seems like ritual um, has always had sort of a religious connotation or has a certainly religious connotation. We're going to talk soon about a ritual in academia that I'm going to run off to in an hour. Uh, but, but the, but the, but the, you know, when people think about rituals, especially with marking time, uh, there is this connotation of, you know, uh, as Aristotle said, you are what you repeatedly do. And yeah. that notion of time that's in, in, you know, imprinted so deeply in the, throughout your book and throughout what gives you meaning. I wonder, you know, like, um, you know, just to be candid, do you think your daughter or your granddaughter or your grandson, you know, are they going to preserve these, these, these things as you did? Or, you know, uh, like, 
for example, Jews have been observing Passover for thousands of years, or women, uh, you know, have been lighting uh, yard side candles the same the same kind of length of time. Or in Christianity, you detail the history of Christmas in your book. Um, so, you know, are, are, does it trouble you that you know in in a generation this ritual that was important to you won't be important to uh, to your daughter? Uh, because, you know, she might not have the exact life trajectory. And of course, we want our kids to be their own unique individual people. Yeah, I mean, my first instinct, I mean, we'll see, she's not yet three. But (laughs) my first instinct is like, well, that's none of my business. You know what I mean? Like what she chooses and what she believes and what she does, I can only present her with my particulars and my husband can do the same and our other friends and family can do the same. But I think... The thing that's so, um, for me, reassuring in a strange way is that no matter how devout you are, no matter how seriously you take tradition, they change over the eons. And, you know, they have to mutate in order to survive. And no matter how deeply held your belief is or your um, ritual is, whatever you're doing over the course of human history, it's but a blink of an eye, the most traditional, the most old school, the most um, orthodox, you know, in the small O or a large O, um, you know, it's, it's, it's new. And whatever happens in the next couple of generations or the next, you know, hopefully if we don't, we manage not to destroy ourselves in hundreds of generations for anything to, to survive it, it, it has to change. And I can only give her what I have, which is very different than, you know, what my great grandparents who were Orthodox did. Um, and I can only say this is a connection to the people who came before you, myself included, and people who, who we don't know, whose names we don't know. But she has, the, I think the weight of ritual, of the obligation, of the feeling that you have to do something because you're you're carrying on a tradition if it doesn't ring true for you or it doesn't serve the purpose of helping you process change or celebrate or find joy or go through the process of grieving or whatever it is that 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 it serves for the individual i don't think that it's um i don't think that the weight of obligation should force one's hand to do something if it's not what's right for them. And, you know, I, I probably am more enthusiastic about rituals than my parents were. I mean, we had Seder and we had Hanukkah and stuff like that, but like they didn't, um, you know, there wasn't like, they were, it was nice and they liked it. Fine, but cultural, I mean, this, yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But like, for me, this is like, like, I like to throw a party. Like I get into it. And, um, I think that in, you know, the pendulum swings, it, mm-hmm. you know, it could go either way. She may totally, you know, leave off any, any semblance of, of these traditions. Um, my husband's not Jewish, so she also has the traditions from a, a, you know, Western European Christian ancestry, um, to choose from or something new or something totally different. And Mm -hmm. I think that that has to be up to her because I think both belief and lack of belief, they can't be forced, you know, It, 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 it cannot come from a place of, um, like you said, militants. It has to be what um, what what rings true for the individual, and it really brings me, I have to say, to the conversation between my grandfather and my great grandfather, who was Orthodox, and I write about this in the book. And my grandfather 
you know his parents. Um, he was born in New York, but his parents came from Eastern Europe, and um, they believed very, very deeply. And he went off to college, and you know, got all cosmopolitan and secular, <laughs> as one does. And um, and he came home, and you know that, like, as the story retold to me, obviously many decades later, you know, that like pit, not in the pit of his stomach, waiting, you know, to talk to his dad. And he comes home and he finds his dad jobbing and he waits for him to finish. And, you know, very sheepish says, look, I better talk to you about something, dad. Um, I'm not going to go to school anymore. I'm not going to keep kosher anymore. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't believe. And his father looked up at him and said, the only sin would be to pretend. And I just that, you know, by the time it was told to me, it was like a family mantra legend. And I really, I really think that, that, um, that, that to me is, is the deepest thing is that you, you know, in terms of this stuff and especially in terms of ritual, you know, if, if, if it doesn't ring true for you, you know, and it doesn't have any value, I don't think that, you know, even as, as however fabulous my satyrs may be when my daughter is an adult, if she doesn't want to throw them, you know, that's on, that's up to her. What I don't want is her to do it, something that's very labor intensive out of obligation, you know? All right. Yeah. I guess one thing that, as you're saying that I hadn't really thought made the connection, but you know, there's a statement, I think Dawkins made this, you know, that it's basically a crime, you know, when, when a kid is born to say, Oh, you are Christian, like you, nobody's Christian from birth. Like your husband could take a genetic test, but it's not going to say what religion, you know, he comes from right, with the right. accuracy and specificity that we can take it as Ashkenazi Jews predominantly. Um, and he basically, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth and you know him better than I do, but it, it almost is like, oh, it's like child abuse, you know, to like expose a, a child to the religion of their or his or her birth. And I, I do feel like uh, it's it's kind of disingenuous. And I, and I said this, uh, you know, on several different interviews that I've given in connection to, you know, my thoughts on Judaism and on, and on observance in general as a, as a practicing scientist and as a, as a, as a person of faith who is really more sort of you know, practicing agnostic in that I don't know for certain that, that God exists. Um, but I see, you know, like if God does exist, is he going to, or she going, you know, <laughs> I'm going to say he uh, traditionally. And I'm uh, not, don't worry. I'm yeah. Is he, is he going <laughs> to, is he going to say, Oh, you kept kosher. Like, how dare you? You know, basically. And that there is sort of a hierarchy uh, in terms of religions, not that, you know, one is better than the other, but there's something about monotheism versus non-monotheism. And most of your book is concerned with monotheism religions and i just wonder you know when you when you think about these rituals um that are observed is there not you know a, a class distinction between a monotheistic faith and kind of a polytheistic or pantheistic or even pagan and, and not not to mean like you know heathens but but paganistic in terms of nature worship we see a lot of movement nowadays towards you know i don't want to say worship of the earth but really that mother nature is sort of you know this Ga- gaia and and and, and so forth um uh, whether or not people actually I mean, they do have rituals, right? They, you know, there are rituals where we celebrate the earth, and 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 there's good aspects of that as well. But what are, what is your take on just the main distinction that I think Judaism came and did away with, which is monotheism versus polytheism? Let's say. I mean, I don't really make a distinction between belief between specific beliefs. Uh, yeah. To me, if you're if there's 
to, in my mind, there's two camps. There's belief that comes from evidence mm -hmm. um, and uh, that can stand up to scrutiny that doesn't rely on faith. And there's belief that relies on faith and your own experience. And I don't think, you know, whether you have one God or a lot of gods or it's sort of abstract, you know, I think that there, there are certain gray areas in terms of, you know, what is a philosophy versus a um, religion in that, like Shintoism in Japan has sort of elements of, of, of a philosophical connection to the earth and to nature, and it has religious elements too, but it sort of doesn't, it's, it, it, at least from a Western perspective, it seems to bridge two different areas, you know, two, the two different areas of a religion and a philosophy. I think you see that um, from time to time. But I think that, you know, and if you go back far enough, you know, our, this idea of science versus religion, that, that, this, that didn't exist until there were questions that could be answered by science that the answer became in direct conflict with the religious doctrine. And I mean, you know, uh, heliocentrism comes to mind. Um, and I think that for most of human history, the more deeply we understood nature, really understood it, really understood the patterns, the phases of the moon, the changing of the seasons, the equinoxes and the solstices, the closer we were to our God or gods, whether they were literal or metaphorical, singular or plural. And I think that this idea that those, those concepts are in conflict is relatively new. Um, but no, I don't, I mean, I'm really, in, a lot of the book is a concerned with, with monotheism, as you mentioned, but a lot of it actually is about, you know, uh, ancient Greek culture and um, which is, course polytheistic and um you know other you know I, as i mentioned like shintoism really fascinates me because it has this connection to nature that's so um respectful mm -hmm. and celebratory and I, I i think that that is something that um sometimes we lose um especially with monotheism mm -hmm. not always but sometimes right. So uh, now I want to turn uh, maybe a little bit to, uh, to to the portion of the book that speaks to me as a former teacher, along mm -hmm. with uh, Pulitzer Prize winning poet Ray Armentrout. We taught a class called uh, called uh, Poetry for Physicists. So not the awesome. uh, not the normal uh, class that you're used to hearing. And here's how we began the course. And I want I want to know your preference between these two. Po prose poems. The first is Amazing. by Walt, Walt Whitman, and it's called because because I think your book is a, has a rhyme to it has a has a poetic meter and uh, it's it's quite lovely and uh, I think you'll appreciate this. So Walt Whitman uh, wrote this called "When I Heard the Learned Astronomer." When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them. When I heard when I when I sitting heard the astronomer when he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. That's that's poem number one. I, poem number I'm two, familiar with it. It's a yeah. good one. Go on. Po poem number two is uh, not really thought of as a poem, but I think it is by Richard Feynman. It actually doesn't have a title to it, but he says, poets say science takes away from the beauty of the stars. 
mere globs of gas atoms. I too can see the stars on a desert night and feel them. But do I see less or more? The vastness of the heavens stretches my imagination. Stuck on this carousel, my little eye catches one, million-year-old light, a vast pattern of which I am a part. What is the pattern or the meaning or the why? It does not do harm to the mystery to know a little bit about it. For far more marvelous is the truth than any of the artists of the past imagined it. Why do the poets of the present not speak of it? What men are poets who can speak of Jupiter if he were a man, but if he is an immense spinning sphere of methane and ammonia, must be silent? So I think I know which one you might prefer, but I'd like to hear from you. I don't know. Have you ever heard the Feynman? Yes. yes. And I have to say, I love Walt Whitman, but I'm with Feynman on yes. this one for sure. I figured you might be. Yeah. So but, can you talk about it? Yeah. Okay. I mean, so I, this is my position is, um, and sometimes it's, you know, it's not always the, um, it's the delivery. So often when we communicate the grandeur of the universe and our deep understanding um, of the beauty of nature, it, we don't have the passion that you see sometimes. I mean, the first version of this that comes to mind is like a, a great preacher. Like that enthusiasm, that thrill, that joy gets lost sometimes. I think that this is the, the connection between those two, between um, that spine-chilling thrill and the true nature as revealed by science, you know, as as well as we can get our little minds around it at this point in our, in our species history, you know, connecting those two things. Um, I think it's one of the things that my, both my parents or you know, my father was, and my mom is so gifted at. And I think that when we, when we think that some, we lose something in clarity, in specificity, when we, um, think of it as 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 um less magical less beautiful when we understand something deeply i think that we rob ourselves of an even greater understanding an even deeper sense of connectedness and um you know awe but um it's it's really difficult to to present sometimes you know i often say facts get maligned as cold and hard. You know, we have this idea that, um, you know, when you just look at, I mean, the cold, hard facts, right? We have this idea that information is unromantic, that it's not beautiful, that it's not stirring. And I think that that's really shortchanges us. And, you know, mysteries are wonderful, but we like mysteries as, you know, when we get to find out the ending, when we get yeah. to find out what happens, you know? And I think that that curiosity, um, I think, you know, there's so much that we've come to understand even over the last few centuries that is so much more astonishing, in my opinion, than we could have ever imagined. But when we take a step back from it and actually look at it, uh, it's, it's very different than the things that we sort of become accustomed to understanding. I mean, you know, I, I write about this, like the idea that food grows out of the ground because of water and sunshine and you put it in your mouth and you absorb the nutrients, and you live on. I mean, even something as simple as that, I think because we learn it when we're very small children, and we learn it, you know, often from people who are sort of blasé about it, um, we, don't, we lose that 
sort of astonishment about it. But if you were coming, you know, I don't know, from another planet or something, and everything was completely new, every little element of human life, reproduction, genetics, and not to mention, you know, astronomy and um, evolution are, are so beautiful and stirring and poetic if we just talk about it in that way and sort of emphasize the parts that are so magnificent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you, you really hit on a bunch of themes there. I want to unpack one of them is related to a guest that we had on just this week in honor of his book, Mario Livio. He wrote a book called Galileo and the Science Deniers that's out now. Uh, but uh, his previous book was called Why? What Makes Us Curious? And in that book, he and I spoke about this. You know, if you sit down with your with your daughter and you and she asks you about gravity and you start, you know, with the inverse square law and the geometric metrics and, you know, she's going to lose interest pretty quickly. But in his mind, he says, no, teach, teach the uh, t- teach about uh, the dinosaurs. You know, I, what kid is not interested in dinosaurs? Right. And you mentioned they go through this in the book, going to the Natural History Museum right. uh, with your dad as, as a as a child. Um, but what so so say to them, well, say to her or, or any child in your life you know well this dinosaur is not here because of something called gravity and something called an asteroid and the asteroid was attracted to the earth by gravitational forces and then you tie it into what they're naturally thirsty for there's a quote in the talmud that you should teach a child according to their ways you know what what aspect of a child is not more kind of delicious and wonderful than their curiosity totally agree with that yeah and you bring this up in your book so so you know so delightfully you talk about the theme of the book that runs through again not going to give it away. I want everyone to buy six copies now. Now it's, like, <laughs> now it's inflation. Now we're yeah. up uh, but I want I want people to. Buy, but but the book uh, goes through the seasons, and you talk about you know the reason for the season is because of the of the axial tilt of the Earth, and how fascinating that is that we have. Passover, you know, if you're religious or Easter in the spring, because of this 23 and a half degree tilt that the Earth has and uh, uh, relative uh, tilt with respect to its orbital plane. And then, you know, I was thinking, well, that would be an amazing thing to start teaching, you know, teaching little kids. They understand why the seasons are, um, you know, they understand that ser- seasons are oh, except here in La Jolla, San Diego. We have pretty easy, you know, seasons here. It goes from, you know, 68 to 72 and, and that we call a hot day. Or uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the, the notion of, you know, of, of teaching came across in the book as a form of ritual. And I wonder, you know, uh, I was told that uh, by a Russian colleague that the word scientist in the, in the Russian language means one who was taught. Mm. And I think about teaching as a ritual. And as I said, later today, I'm going to engage in a ritual. Uh, one of my graduate students, who's now a professor, Darcy Barron in, in New Mexico, uh, she made this plaque that details our academic family tree. Mm. And it goes back, uh, it goes back uh, 19 generations now. And actually, she has her own graduate student wow. uh, at, at the university. So I've got 20 generations, goes back to the 1500s. Uh, and, uh, and yet, I feel like you know, in, in the way that we have, and I have a, a, one of my, my, I think my 14th student's going to defend his PhD in about, uh, in about 90 minutes. Um, uh, so I want to talk about academic rituals and, and, and the teacher-learner you know, mentor process and what it means to you. You were lucky to have wonderful uh, you know, parents and teachers living in the house with you. And, and last night I sent this shocking video. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's, it's weird because it's meant to be like comforting. It's this robot called Moxie. Have you seen it? No. It's a what robot is it? called Moxie. And uh, I hope they won't stop advertising with the Into the Impossible podcast. But, 
it's a robot and it's like you're you're supposed to put it in the room with your kid and leave and the robot is basically you know can pass the turing test that a you know a four-year-old can can muster and then it holds your kid's hand and it asks them problems you know who's who's bothering them at school and and I sent it to my wife. She's like, that's so creepy. It's awful. Like, why would you want to do that? And I, and I was wondering, but there must be a need. Like, teaching is so difficult. This is Teacher Appreciation Week here in America, at least. A lot oh, of homeschooling going a on. A lot of, of people realizing how hard it is to be a teacher. So talk us through the, uh, the ritual of education, of being a parent, being a child, being a student, being a teacher. Well, I think that the the it's so funny because something like defending your thesis or graduation, it falls so clearly into the very traditional um, structure of a ritual, right? You are apart from something. Um, uh, this is defined in this this book um, uh, called Rites of Passage, which sort of was an early exploration of these things, um, where you start apart, and it's the preliminal phase, and then liminal, meaning threshold, is the ritual, and then you go through the threshold, and you're together, you know, and so, like, for example, a wedding is very traditional in this format. You're apart, you have the ritual of the ceremony, and then you're together as a married couple, but with graduation, right, you're, you're apart from your degree, from your maybe new time from your you know future career and you go through the the ritual and you say the magic words or you're given the magical paper and you are deemed you know to have passed through this threshold and now you are someone else you are something else you are part of something else and so I think that there's there's so much and you see it I mean just anything anytime that there are like gowns and hats involved you know in things that we otherwise don't do um you can think of it as a ritual um but in terms of the everyday elements of it and i think you can see this from really early in childhood you know children are so naturally curious and you're right it's one of their most fabulous qualities about a little person and it's i think so often um adults feel as some element of insecurity if they don't have all the answers and i was really lucky because um i had two amazingly brilliant parents but also because they were so willing to say when they didn't know the answer and that was actually something that was really celebrated like when i was small and i could ask a question to which they didn't know the answer. It was like I had done something really wonderful because I was curious enough to get beyond the knowledge of two very, you know, very smart adults. And it was like my brain was working. And so, you know, in those days, we would go over to the encyclopedia and mm -hmm. pull off the, the right volume and try to search for the answer. And this kind of almost little intellectual adventure was this family activity. And we would try to find a clue towards what we were getting towards. And now, because we all have the encyclopedia and so much more in our pockets, it's so much easier. And, you know, if you're like in the car and your kid has a question, you know, it used to be, well, when we get home, we can look it up. And now, you know, pull over safely but you know now it's like it's all these answers are with you and of course we have to discern sources and we have to take into account where we're getting our information and all sorts of ulterior motives and things like that but the idea that we have access to this you know and sometimes it's very basic question you know what year did something happen or who was this person I've heard their name and I don't know what they did or why I know who they are you know and like to go down those rabbit holes of well what about this and well when was that together as a family is so special and it really is a ritual because 
you start separated from the information you're looking for. <laughs> you get there, you read it, you research it, you find what you're looking for, and then you're united in this deeper understanding. And when you do it as a family, it's so special. And, you know, I think just getting comfortable in general, but especially with small children, with the idea of saying, I don't know the answer to that. That's a really good question. Is so, um, uh, it's such a, a it's, I think it's, it, it's such a gift yeah. to a child because then they don't feel like they have to pretend that they know everything and, and they understand that it's okay to not have all the information, but that it's more important to follow the curiosity towards real information rather than forcing an answer in because we have such discomfort with ambiguity, with not knowing. Yeah. Um, and I also just think you end up learning so much more. And like my daughter, I said, she, you know, as I said, she's not three yet. She's again, talking about like our relationship with nature, like, and I mean, when she sees the moon, she like freaks out like every t time, like it's brand new and amazing. And like what through her eyes, I'm it's, it is amazing. And and again, talking about gravity and like, there it is. And it controls the tides and it changes over the course of the month. And because of her fascination with it, now my husband and I are like really well versed in the phases of the moon and like waning and waxing gibbuses and all this stuff that like, you know, she now can, can on site recognize. And it's like, it's like you were saying, this was something that she was curious about yeah. and we just went all, <laughs> all in with it. And now it's this, family source of enthusiasm, you know, most nights. The family of lunatics. Well, I yes, want to make exactly. a connection. Yes, exactly. In the literal sense, right? Yeah, well, so maybe also the figurative sense. One of our, <laughs> hardly, hardly. One of our uh, listeners uh, gave me a, a question to ask you, and it really connects to this curiosity and to the moon and to being a woman. And his you know, question is, what do you sort of make of the fact that in his mind, uh, the first astronomers might have been women. I mean, actually knowing about the connection between the a monthly cycles that they uh, enjoy uh, or, or not, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't experienced it uh, myself. But but the the point is, um, you know, that he claims that people, uh, women, would have been the most keen observers of the moon and the most influenced by it, and noted obviously with their vastly superior intelligence that that there's some <laughs> connection and there is this at monthly ritual and you, you talk about it in the book a little bit but yeah. i wonder if you could walk us through that because it does connect to exactly what you said your curiosity linked to your biology linked to the astronomical right and so i it's fascinating because i always thought that there was a you know scientific evidence that supported why the menstrual cycle was mm -hmm. on the same ish depending on the person schedule mm -hmm. as um the the cycles of the moon and when i went to research it for the book i was astonished that there's no like hard evidence right um that of a connection which isn't to say that there isn't a connection we just haven't proven it yet so we have to sort of sit in the ambiguity about it but the thing that is so astonishing to me um, and connects to this is how many disparate cultures made their moon deities goddesses female. Mm -hmm. And that connection and that sense of, you know, this personification of these inanimate objects, which is, you know, and, and you know, in some cases in nature, animate objects too, but this personification and this idea that there's a story to tell that connects to us and also is a reflection. It's so often a mirror of our needs and wants and fears and experiences. And you see that in so many different cultures around the world. And it's so interesting. But I think, you know, I think in, a, in any society pre 
you know, certainly pre-electricity, but pre-domestication of fire, the moon has got to be a central figure for anybody who has to like get up in the night to pee or like do anything when, you know, do you think about how much more of an influence the difference between a full full moon and a new moon was when there was no other light at night. I find that's really haunting and, yeah. and it makes it so clear how important that this rock, you know, that orbits <laughs> us was to, to our, our point of view for, for until very recently. Yeah. One other thing that I was talking about with my wife, this is sort of my speculation, but take it for what it's worth that I, I believe that that uh children you ever notice that you know grandchildren that said have a special connection with uh with their grandparents and it's because they have a common enemy (laughs) (laughs) but but i actually think even even the maternal grandmother is sort of privileged in a sense um this will make my mom she's the mother of four boys she she won't hear this but but actually the maternal grandmother uh is even more connected because in a sense your daughter uh her hebrew name's higher or her middle name's higher yes her middle name's higher her name's helena helena okay yeah from the greek uh the greek Mm -hmm, scientific side right right um so that she was when she was born i believe that women are born with all the eggs that they're going to have speaking so that means that at one point all the eggs that are inside uh of, of Helena were inside yeah. of your mother, right? So yeah, yeah. they are connected indelibly. Well, but they weren't in there for, it was, I think it's when you're, what you have to develop in the feed, you know, as a fetus before you're born where all the eggs are, but the genetic information, I right, guess. Right, right. Well, well um, the day you were born, yes, you allegedly, yes, right? You would have yes. the egg that became her, right? Absolutely, so that means yes. that egg was inside of you, which is inside of her. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fascinating. Isn't and it like amazing? that feeling, oh, so just like that, um, that connection of of birth and and also you know like you know as Mother's Day is coming up mm-hmm. and you just think about the unbroken chain back to the earliest humans and beyond um, of this relationship and you know it's not always the person who raises you it's mm-hmm. not always the person who you feel that connection to but some somewhere you grew inside of someone and that that chain going back is I find really moving um and 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 again one of those things that you learn when you're very small you know the babies come from inside somebody's womb and uh it's very easy to be sort of blase about but when you step back it's one of the wildest things that is imaginable the other thing i thought when i was reading it and talk when you talk about when when she was born uh and i think i think it's true and i I, this might be one of my you know many uh dunsley things to say but (laughs) i believe the belly button is the only thing on the human body that doesn't change size as you get oh. older. Because it's not determined by you. It's determined by the umbilical cord that went to your mother's placenta, right? Oh, interesting. So I've that never means, you know, heard that before. Yeah, so I always joke, you know, your mom may have made you to my kids, but, you know, I made your belly button. Yes. Because right? I'm right. the one who snipped it off, you know. So An- maybe... Another ritual. Exactly, right? The right? idea of that. Exactly. It's, it's a, that's one of those things. I think that's, that's something I'm really fascinated with, too, is all the things that we don't really call rituals or see as rituals that are a part of these big experiences and a part of daily life um, that are really poetic in a way when you, when you look at them, but we sort of are just like, Oh yes, of course the dad has to be there to cut the cord (laughs) or whatever. That's right. Yeah. They're the, they're the ones that are just pacing back and forth most of the time. Trying not to faint. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Although I think, you know, modern men, my uh, contemporaries and I are, you know, we're trying to step it up a little bit more. 
more, especially you guys now are we're doing do, great. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're doing our best. We're standing on the shoulders of giants, uh, mm-hmm. namely our our wives and mothers. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to start wrapping up because I know you've got so many uh, demands on your time, uh, and I want to uh, ask a little bit about um, about you know again about your mom. This maybe we'll make this the Mother's Day edition of the Into yeah. the Impossible podcast, but but the kinds of um, uh, wisdom, you know, I always say that that science means knowledge in Latin. It doesn't mean wisdom. And I feel like, you know, you you certainly got this this curiosity. Some of it was genetic. Some of it was, um, you know, was, was epigenetic or learned by you and developed by you. And um, uh, but what what kinds of lessons did they communicate with you? I mean, do you have these recordings? I know I I, I say things like this, you know, all the time. Uh, and I and you know like and it's just parroting back what my mother or father or late father used to say that to me. And I wonder, you know, are there kind of ethical or wisdom lessons that have come through from these, uh, from your, from your parents that come through to you and, and, you know, if that enabled you or guided you to take on, it's a huge production. I always say, people say, you know, having a, uh, writing a book is as close to having a baby as a man can have. And I'm like, you're an idiot. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, you know, I was drinking like lattes most of the time when I was writing my book, but, but, you know. In, in the case of, of you coming from this, did you feel pressure? Did you feel an obligation? There's so many people that you meet, and you talk about it in the book, when people meet you, oh, you're, you're Carl Sagan's daughter, you know, and for you, it's the painful aspects, and they ask you how he is, or, or they ask you, you know, something about like, well, you must be over that by now. What kind of um, pressure did you feel, if any, to, you know, keep up the Sagan name, obviously, and to keep these, these traditions of your mother and your father going in the artistic and artistic science adjacent? I think, you know, they really instilled in me, um, I I think it goes hand in hand with curiosity, but also just this idea of, you know, trying to, as you're researching, just trying to get it right. If you make a mistake, admit it, do what you can to change it. I'm sure there are mistakes in the book. Anyone is more than welcome to mm-hmm. to find me and let me know. I would love I only to found learn. One. Okay, I only okay, found you have one. to okay, I'll you have play. to tell me what it is at some <laughs> okay. point. Email me um, or tell me right now. It's fine. Oh, uh, the <laughs> only thing is uh, you talk about uh, Yom Kippur, the things that you're uh, that you're supposed oh, to do on Yom Kippur. And then oh. you're not supposed to do, and you say in Leviticus, it says you're not supposed to drink, but it actually doesn't say that. It just oh. says, it says you shall afflict yourself. Actually, this is interesting. Let me ask you. Oh, yeah. The actual quote is you shall afflict yourself. And then the Pharisees, the rabbinical, uh, you know, leaders of the, of the early, you know, part of the Talmudic epoch, they decided affliction means that you don't eat or drink, but it's totally made up by them. Oh, okay. It doesn't say anywhere in the, in the Torah, in the Old Testament. Oh my so, goodness. That's fascinating thank you for telling me and yet we all do it right we all do we all fast or we try to right you know or we don't but but anyway so it's carried on through this ultra orthodox sect you know and without that we wouldn't do this ritual that even the most reform you know liberated or or whatever however you want to say it a jews practice and i wonder why that is why i mean that we take these traditions from uh, from religious sects that are so much more, you know, conservative, you know, small C, um, yeah. than we are. Do you, do you have anything? Oh, that's that? so interesting. So you're saying that the, even the fasting yeah. is not. Doesn't say fast. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's fascinating. And I'm mm-hmm. just going to have like, um, <laughs> no, um, I, I, next year I'm going to have a million French fries. No. Um, but I, I think that 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 is really well. I think partly it's because, like myself, people don't look into what you know the original language is, um, and I think because we 
fasting, I mean, that chapter talks a lot about fasting and fasting is so, um, such yeah. a clear way of saying, I am giving something up. Mm-hmm. And it's such a, um, an overt ritual of you can, you are experiencing this physically. It's not just going through the motions, you know, you're really um, having this physical experience that I think people crave something like that, you know, one day or, you know, depending on different religions and different cultures, it's, you know, from sunrise, sundown for a month or whatever it is. Um, I think that there is this element of wanting that almost physical connection to the ritual, but, Mm. uh, or it's just, they're like, this is what my grandmother told me to do. So I'm going to do it. I mean, there's a lot of that. I think they got so much right. I mean, charity, uh, as you say, fasting is good for people nowadays, meditation, prayer. There are, there's so many good things that are concomitant with, with the, you know, and I think if people got away from this feeling as, as you seem to have gotten away from, you know, that you, you are in a sense, you are choosing the things that appeal to you and choosing not to do the things that don't appeal to you. Obviously that's not a standard, you know, an Orthodox Jew would right, practice right. Or, or whatever. Any or, religion. Yeah. yeah. But, and it's kind of tailored to you, but you seem to have accepted that it may not continue with, uh, you know, Helena or, or, or whoever else, but that's okay because you have uh, determined a kind of, um, you know, gestalt for your own life and how you want and the values that you're communicating are the essence, the code that you want to transmit into the future. I think that's obviously very beautiful. Well, thank you. I to wanna, answer your uh, question, yeah. wait, I do want oh, to answer sure, your yeah. question, though, about, like, family, yeah. um, you know, I guess, pressure. I think that, that I haven't really experienced this feeling. I mean, I think anyone wants to, like, positively reflect on their parents, I yeah. would imagine, and I definitely feel that way. But I never felt a pressure um, that I had to, like, live up to something so much as, like, the book, I I felt like it was more that like the, the pressure of like having something inside me that I wanted to write about and the like actually getting it down on paper almost felt like a relief rather than a source of stress, if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, when you like, you know, write something, it's because you like need to, and then that's the only reason helpful, you write something. Right. And it's, if yeah. it's helpful to somebody else, that's, wonderful but it's like it's almost really selfish because it's like you have to get this out there and like I just I don't know I was really lucky to have the parents and have my mom that I have and um you know I think that the emphasis on questioning and the willingness to hear questions and the willingness to um tolerate ambiguity you know, is something that's so hard to do as a parent or just as a human being. And it's something that they really gave me as a gift, Um, you know, to be able to say, I don't know, to be able to say some things are, you know, really mysterious still. We don't have all the answers and we may get some someday and other things we won't. Um, But that life on, on this little planet is still profoundly beautiful even if this is all there is yeah precious and fleeting right yeah i didn't as i as i read it you know i was thinking when i wrote my book you know how did my father react to it and you know he used he was he was a militant atheist my late father and he used to say things like i don't believe in god but i do believe in the devil because he made you believe in god you know oh, wow. <laughs> i mean he was very seriously militant against it and it's uh, refreshing and, and quite lovely to see you know your father who was 
known for, you know, the, the, the books of, of kind of, uh, and you must know this, that there's scornful kind of reviews of the detrimental effect that Carl Sagan's Cosmos had and uh, Andrew had on, on believers because it was seen by a billion people around the world. And, and, had, and I'm like, if your faith is so paper thin that you, uh, you can't use it not only to not damage your faith, but to increase your faith, if you believe you should know the most about science because it will provide you the clearest window, maybe not the only one, but the clearest window into this magical, you know, almost mysterious uh, uh, processes by which God, if you believe, if, if you don't, that's fine. I don't really care. But, um, you know, created the world or what purpose the world might have. I don't know. I'm looking for it. And I think every day is a, is a mysterious, delicious puzzle. I want to yeah. just take the opportunity because uh, some of the listeners have asked questions on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, one thing... Uh, is uh and i i don't know if you can even answer this but uh, but in contact uh, one listener is asking uh the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is coming from uh looking uh, originally comes from you know jody foster slash uh, jill tarter hearing this uh you know, radio impulses on a large radio telescope the very large array which i um am privileged to go and review every so often as part of my uh, uh service to the to the astronomical community uh it's a wonderful facility but she hears it using radio signals uh after, you know, we're now celebrating basically the 60th year of the uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence uh, with which your dad was deeply involved. And I wonder what would he say about the state? You know, we haven't found anything. And, you know, you're a big believer in evidence and belief, but, you know, we have no evidence that they exist, positive evidence. At what point, you know, would he give up, uh, do you think? Or would you, let's just say, personally, at what point do you turn the telescopes off? Because we don't have infinite resources on this perilous planet. Um, you know, when do you give up a search and, and just reside with the feeling that you may never know? Well, we may never know whether we search or, or we don't. But I think that um, it's very, it's the answer to a deep and profound question to know if this is, if it's just us or not. And, you know, um, I think my dad's curiosity about that was very profound and mine is too. And again, you know, this is one of those things where people would say, what come up to him and say, well, what do you think? And he would say, I don't know. Um, and they would say, yeah, but like, what does your gut tell you? And he would say, I don't, I try not to use my gut for this sort of thing. I try to use my mind. And, um, I think, you know, it is an important question and it is a profound question. And, and as long as we can, try to gain a little more evidence. Um, I think whatever the answer is, it's nothing we could possibly guess. And so it is worth trying to find out. And it tells us either way, the answer tells us so much about ourselves. Mm. Very nice. Uh, And I guess the last kind of comment or question that that people are interested in hearing from you, if, if you can uh, kind of profess that, um, you know, for, for on behalf of your father, but I actually don't care. I'll change it to just to you, but, um, at some level, there is a there is an element of belief, even to scientists. Uh, I see it in my field. Uh, I did a video online about uh, the multiverse versus faith in God, and which which sort of you know what differences and similarities do they have, and and all the comments are, that are negative are all about you know God is this is this terrible, and no scientist believes in things. They always have evidence, and I think for something like the multiverse, which may you know according to the brightest minds in science, don't just listen to me, may be un 
unprovable because it posits the existence of a perhaps infinite number of other universes, similar to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. There may be life that existed a billion years ago on a galaxy that's, you know, uh, you know 30, uh, 30 million light years away. We'll never get in contact. We'll never receive evidence for it. Um, so when you wrestle with that, how, how did, did your father or do you uh, reconcile that, that notion of just of, of anything that you have lack of evidence for? It doesn't mean evidence of lack, but it does mean it does as a human instill you know some something nagging i think and 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 god could be one of those things for someone who's who is a believer or maybe struggling with belief i mean you know scientists are human beings um like (laughs) everybody else and yeah exactly and um you know of course we all have experiences where we're invested in something we want something to be true or we want something to not be true and that colors our our approach and our view and our language around it. Um, but I think that, you know, there's a difference between positing a possibility, saying that this is how this could work, or here's some evidence that suggests it, and being open to scrutiny and being open to following the evidence wherever it leads. I think that there's a difference between that and making, to paraphrase, my dad making an extraordinary claim without having extraordinary evidence to support it. So, you know, of course, you know, imagination is central to any kind of exploration or understanding. We have to have some wild ideas to get to, you know, I don't know, go to the moon, do anything that we've ever done, you know, create an airplane, uh, sail across an ocean, you know, these require a very, um, uh, adventuresome imagination, right? <laughs> but, right. Otherwise, it can't be done. But I think that the, those those endeavors only work um, when we follow the evidence and mm. see where it leads and and see what can stand up to scrutiny and what will what will actually float and what won't. Great. Okay, I want to finish up uh, since you mentioned imagination. We are the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, and this is the Into the Impossible podcast. The words "Into the Impossible" derive from uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke's second law, which is that the only way to uh, to find out what is possible is to venture a little bit beyond into the impossible. And I want you to take out a telescope in your mind and look back at a twenty-year-old uh, Sasha. And uh, and give her some advice. What things did you once feel were perhaps impossible uh, that you managed to do and uh, and advise her, uh, but that by venturing into the impossible you were able to accomplish? Oh, it's such a good question. I think you know the thing that I think surprises me most about uh, that, or I would be most surprised by at twenty about myself at thirty-seven um, is uh, actually touching on what you were saying earlier about be, uh, writing a book being like having a baby. I was um, a terrible procrastinator most of my life, certainly when I was twenty years old in college, waiting <laughs> until the night before to start writing papers, and I started writing like really writing my book um, right after my daughter was born. And I would have imagined that that would not have been possible, but there was something about the urgency of knowing, like I had to go relieve the babysitter in three hours. I better not sit and look at Instagram, which of course 20 year old me would have been like, what's that? Um, You know, uh, I got to actually put some paper, some words on this piece of paper. Um, I think that that, that, that idea that sometimes the, the, the most difficult work 
you have to do can be done more easily under a higher pressure situation than it can be when you have all the time in the world. I think that's what would most surprise me about my own life (laughs) at that age. Well, I want to continue on that theme of books. The two questions I have are related to books and actually a quote, very famous quote uh, from the 11th episode of the 1980s series Cosmos called The Persistence of Memory. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your father, Carl Sagan, said, what an astonishing thing a book is. What an astonishing thing a book is. It's a flat object made from a tree with flexible parts on which are imprinted lots of funny dark squiggles. But one glance at it and you're inside the mind of another person. Maybe somebody dead for thousands of years. Across the millennia, an author is speaking clearly and silently inside your head, directly to you. Writing is perhaps the greatest of human inventions, binding together people who never knew each other, citizens of distant epochs. Books break the shackles of time. A book is proof that humans are capable of working magic. Working magic. First of all, I want to thank you for alerting me to the fact, which I didn't know, that magic comes from the word magi, mm-hmm. uh, which I never knew, which you've uh, d- discovered and talk about uh, for me. So thank you for that. But uh, let's talk about books for a second. Uh, you, you wrote this book, and I, and I do feel like books are sort of um, uh, human-created DNA in that it really uh, impels us to communicate not just our knowledge, because I think you know Wikipedia, like you were saying before, it's Encyclopedia Britannica has a lot more facts and knowledge than I'll ever have, but it doesn't have any wisdom. And I wonder, um, you know, what what books mean to you, or do they have the same kind of resonance as with your father? Uh, in that, uh, in, in that, it really does communicate from his mind to our minds. And uh, and do you wish that he had written his his own autobiography? There is a biography of him, but not an autobiography. Those are all really good questions. Yeah, I mean, when I think about a book, I, I think about time travel. I really mm-hmm. do. Yeah. And I think about the idea that you can, uh, as, as, he, as he said, um, be inside the mind of someone. Um, and, you know, what, whatever is written today, that that can, that can survive on longer than the lifespan of the writer is really profound and moving. Um, I think that, that there's something... Um, about that that's that's really stirring and something that probably would have seemed impossible to people who lived in a time before the written word. Um, sorry, in terms of him writing an autobiography, I mean, my mom and I have talked about this and there are a few biographies about of him. Um, you know, it's so hard. It's so hard to write your own life. It's so hard to have someone else write your life. You know, that is a form of time travel that we have not yet mastered, whether it's your your own words or someone else's, you know, to really understand fully um, what the life of someone else was um, in a time when you were not present in a full picture is really hard. All we can really do is get little glimmers through individual stories and experiences and anecdotes and I cherish the ones I have, um, you know, the ones that he shared publicly and the ones that I just got to hear at the dining room table of him, especially as a little boy in Bensonhurst and Brooklyn playing handball and just, um, you know, being like a kid. One of my most joyful things is imagining him as a little, as a little boy in the 1930s and forties in New York. Um, (laughs) 
definitely definitely a, a time I'd like to travel to. <laughs> okay, last question just about books is um, who uh, would you choose if you could only give this to one one person or you know a, a group of people? Would it be to uh, Orthodox Jews, uh, devout Muslims, uh, Christians, uh, born again Christians, or would it be to militant atheists, skeptics, uh, you know, as so-called uh, secular humanists? If you could only have one group read this book, who would it be for? I would like, um, if I had only both. one group, oh, okay, no, 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 I have a, can I do a third option? Can you can, I? yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, it would be people who sort of identify as um, spiritual but not religious. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that there is, um, you know, people are very devout or, you know, in either direction, if they're very devout religiously or um, very devout um, as atheists, you know, that's, they're all set. Um, the people who I really would be so delighted to have read my book are people who want that connection to nature to the earth to the stars um and don't feel it from religion um but and are sort of vulnerable to be getting swept up in things like astrology or crystals or things like that that are not supported by evidence and maybe feel a little bit um unsatisfied by that but it feels like um some of that that thrilling for lack of a better word, magic, spiritual sense of being part of the cosmos and part of the planet. I think um, I think that there's a there's a way forward that is evidence based and still gives you that that joy um, that we all crave in different ways. Great. Well, this book, as it's been described, is a memoir. It's a guidebook uh, for the perplexed and the, where they fit in in the in this great, vast, beautiful cosmos that uh, she and her family are the first family of this cosmos. So, uh, Sasha, I want to thank you so much. Can you uh, just tell people really quickly where to find you, where to find your book, uh, what other projects you might want them to be interested in in the future? Um, sure. Thank you so much, Brian. Um, you can find my book anywhere that you get books. Support support your local bookstore if you can. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you can find me uh, on Instagram and Twitter at Sasha Sagan. And my website is SashaSagan.com. And I look forward to to hearing any questions and corrections anyone may have. Out <laughs> That's a there. sign of an intellectually honest author. With that, I used to I used to pay my uh, my kids to find uh, typos in the book. But, uh, oh, that's good. Yeah, that's, and that's actually, a good uh, one. one of them, one of them found a typo in uh, in a Percy Jackson book. But we're tr or having trouble tracking down the dollar from uh, the author of the Percy Jackson. Book. <laughs> <laughs> Send well, anyway, voice. <laughs> yeah, as I said, uh, I have a ritual to get off to, a part of a thousand-year-old academic cultural yes. tradition. I want to thank you for instilling meaning in uh, and participating in this, and I want to wish you. Especially a happy Mother's Day, Sasha. I really Thank hope you. you have a wonderful, uh, meaningful uh, day this, this week. You deserve it. And I look forward to all your uh, future projects. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, Send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego 
in the Division of Physical Sciences. Directed by Eric Veery, Brian Keating, and Patrick Coleman. Produced by Stuart Volko. For more information, go to imagine.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.